Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. As regular listeners will know, we occasionally interview politicians on the show. Previously, we've had Rishi Sunak, Nadeem Zawahi, and Ben Houchen on the show. In my mind, they all have interesting jobs, and they bear responsibility for creating economic conditions which allow business and entrepreneurs to create jobs. And that is why I was really pleased that the Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Secretary, Grant Shapps, agreed to come on. We recorded this interview last Monday afternoon, and I said to the team after the interview, I get nervous about interviewing politicians because things can change so quickly. But it's okay because I think we live in more stable times now. And then four hours later, The Sun reported that there was going to be the first major rejig of government departments. And this meant a nervous 12-hour wait to see what happened. Fortunately, Grant has held on to a sizable portion of his brief, becoming the Energy and Net Zero Secretary. And he and his team were very gracious, saying that we should still go ahead and publish the episode as normal. Although I think the phrase, don't worry, it's all more stable now, is going to go down in the folklore of the Jimmy's Jobs team. Grant's new department is a major restructuring of government. And if you want to know more of my thoughts on that, you can read more about it if you subscribe to our Substack in the episode show notes below. I still wanted to share this important episode with you. Grant Chaps is a politician who had an entrepreneurial career before entering Parliament and has had a pretty incredible life story, which I hadn't fully appreciated. So this is the former Business Secretary Grant Shapps talking about jobs of the future. On to today's episode. Grant, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you. Pleased to be here. We first met in 2005. You were giving a presentation on the importance of email lists to young campaigners. I just wondered what your reflections were on that almost two decades later about how political communication and campaigning have changed. Actually, I think in some senses, thanks for reminding me of that. <laughs> it's gone right back around in circles in some ways because uh, emails were then, you know, before the days of social media, I think Facebook got going in 2007, if I remember rightly. So it was before all that. And it was the only way you could kind of reach people. Then social media came along and, you know, obviously it's still massive and many different formats launched since. But actually the interesting thing about email is you actually can get directly to the individual that you're after rather than something which someone may or may not have a look through Twitter, Facebook, you know, TikTok, Instagram, but they probably will get to their email sooner or later. So I still find it a very valuable way to, by the way, I've still carried on using email all the way through. So yeah, pretty powerful still. And beforehand, we were recording a TikTok for your channel. And we were talking about how nobody approaches you and says, oh, I saw that great tweet you sent. But they do say that about your TikToks. Is it a bit easier to be more informal on those kind of channels? Yeah, I think, I think you know, what TikTok does actually is appeals to people's sort of voyeuristic nature. You can kind of have a look in. And because the style of a TikTok tends to be a selfie as well, it's sort of like, what is it like to be a bit inside that person's world? And I think that's quite, use- that's quite, that's quite useful. Um, so, see, so yeah, I, think, I think it's a bit more personal. And, and it, I always think TikTok's a bit like social media on crack. You know, it's very hard once you start flicking through to stop kind of, maybe the next video will be interesting. Maybe the next one, maybe the next one. I think it it, it draws uh, people in, pluses and minuses to that. I think, though, the politicians need to be where people's eyes are and uh, that actually a lot of people are making the mistake of not going where people are actually, you know, 
looking and reading and hearing these days. So what is your advice in terms of new platforms? Because there's a challenge in the modern world. In 2005, it was pretty much just email and mm. you had a website. Y- yes. Now you have web free, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I think the, the simple answer is you just want to be everywhere, right? You want to be, you certainly want to have an email list. You want to have a website. Website's actually probably the least important of all of these things right now. You definitely want to have in politics, Twitter, because although it, oh, it's quite so Westminster and stuff, it, it is just a quick way of getting news out. You know, it circumvents newsroom and, and, and press notes and stuff because you can just say something directly. And then, you know, if you're on those, you might as well be on Instagram. I personally find TikTok is very engaging. So I think probably on Twitter, I probably have a following of, I think last time, like 178,000 or something. But on TikTok, 13 or 14,000, but I'll probably get more mentions from people. It's reaching a different audience. It's more interactive. It's more, it's more personable um, than, than anywhere else. If you were in your early 20s, where do you think you would be starting your entrepreneurial journey? Because out of the business secretaries that have been over the last few years, you're one of the few that's had a proper entrepreneurial background. And quite a unique story in the fact you didn't go to university. Yeah, I was at Poly. It's now would be called a university. It's at Manchester Met. I was only there for a couple of years, so I didn't do a degree. I don't actually have any A-levels either. So uh, I went and studied a B-Tech and then another B-Tech, essentially. And I found all of that was just sort of great in terms of my entrepreneurial desire. Both my B-Techs were in business and finance. So I kind of... And then I started a printing company 32 years ago. It still goes till now which is surprising and amazing and has definitely done better since i've not been there because over half the time i've been in politics but 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 i was thinking about it if that was today i would almost certainly do something in tech almost certainly and i'm I'm slightly surprised i didn't even back then i saw i was using you know i had you know pc using computers um so even back then i'm slightly surprised i didn't now it would definitely be tech maybe an ai or um which i think is kind of really interesting field britain's got a great lead in that uh, area yeah so somewhere somewhere in the technology sphere uh would, would definitely attract me i wanted to ask you about one of the things that i hadn't properly realized when researching for this interview is that you've actually had two brushes with death and in terms of a car accident that left you in a coma in your teenage years and also cancer in your mid-30s How's that impacted your outlook? Yeah, one was when I was twenty, actually, which was the car crash, and one was when I was thirty, which was the 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 cancer. So I kind of, as I reached my <laughs> those sort of landmark birthdays, start to get slightly worried. Uh, so, so how did it affect me? Actually, I think surprisingly little. People like sometimes people say, "Well, you know, is it was it being in a car crash and being in a coma that made you wake up and think you got to kind of." take control of your life or, you know, follow your heart and dream. And in my case, go into public service. This is what I wanted to do. But the actual truth is I already wanted to go into public service. I'd actually just the week before the car crash been selected for my very first ever public election, which was actually to the local council in Manchester, Withington constituency, but in a ward called Old Moat. My slogan was put the new into Old Moat. Sadly, the electorate didn't agree, and I didn't win that one or the next one that I fought, which was in um, Brent North in London, which is where my business was, or the next one, which I fought, which was for a general election in 97 over in Southwark and Bermondsey, or the one after that, which is the first time I fought in well in Hatfield. So it actually took me five times before I won an election. 
But I don't think either the car crash or 10 years later, I had Hodgkin's lymphoma and I was like a year of chemotherapy and radiotherapy and it was all a pretty, it was a pretty dark time. I can remember once or twice in hospital up in the middle of the night and just thinking, you know, you just go from living at, you know, 100 miles an hour, getting on, I built my business up. I'd met and married my wife, Belinda, and we hadn't had kids yet, but, you know, we were just starting to think about all this. And then suddenly cancer you know, your world is like hitting a wall at 100 miles an hour. Came through the other side. A year later, I was kind of fixed and I've been fine since. But it's not something you've talked about masses. Obviously, I think it was 14 when you first decided you wanted to become an MP or you were interested in becoming an MP and telephoning the local constituency. It's not actually something you've talked a huge amount about. Not for any particular reason. And and actually, on on having cancer and going through all that, a year of chemotherapy and radiotherapy and what have you. Actually, I know that a lot of people come out of those sort of really life-shaking instances and I have huge respect for them. A lot of people come out and sort of devote themselves to charitable work or educational work related to it and feel like it, they're driven by it. And for me, what I most wanted to do is sort of take the opportunity that I got of being in remission to get on with the thing that I most wanted to do, which was public service and similarly actually on, on a different level but my, my background is you know this printing business that i started 32 years ago and it would have been quite tempting to come into parliament and go right my life in parliament's going to be about business small business and actually i haven't done any of those things. I, I almost did the opposite when i got to parliament so maybe i've been we were in opposition first but since we've been in government i've been a housing minister and i've been a local government minister and i've been party chairman and in the foreign office and international development and or, and finally now in the business department and and it's like all of that experience has been flooding back to me this last three or four months of actually what it's like to start a business and one of the things that i one of the reasons I started the business, one of the ways, was through a, a loan guarantee scheme that the government of the day, Thatcher government, offered, which enabled people who had no assets to start in business and get a, a loan that was guaranteed through the scheme. You paid a small percentage for it and the whole thing paid for itself. It's called the loan guarantee scheme or it's been called similar things throughout. And one of the first things I did when I stepped into this room in my office here at the business department was to ask about the scheme, whether it's still going and making sure that we you know, keep it funded for the future. Since then, it's been called the Loan Guarantee Scheme. Most recently, it's been called the COVID Recovery Scheme. And uh, it's, it's still called that, even though it's nothing to do with COVID anymore. You can just, so it's going back to, you know, something like the Loan Guarantee Scheme. We haven't announced the exact name, but on very similar terms. Because, you know, as I say, without that, for, for three decades and employing all the people who've been employed along the line, that those jobs wouldn't have existed in that company. And, you know, so it's, it's made a... And it's made a real difference. And it does show how the state government can interact with, you know, private business to make the world better, in a sense, to make the world work better. And something which could not have happened without the government saying, this is a desirable outcome, how do we make it work? Following on from that, what is the job of the business secretary? And what does the business department do more broadly? Well, I think a bit confused, actually. In truth, because you, the business department, or Bayes, as it's called, the strangest sort of name that no one outside Whitehall would recognise, is business, energy, and industrial strategy. And it also has, but not in the name, climate, because all of the work of 
COP26 when when the climate change conference was held in in uh, in in Scotland and Glasgow. All of that's transferred back to this department. So I'm also the climate secretary, and it's also the whole of our country's uh, governments, at least R and D budget, research and development budget, which has reached a record twenty billion, is very close to touching three percent on the latest ONS Office of National Statistics reckoning, um, and makes us a science superpower. And all of that, and many other things, space. So I, I chair the National Space Council and many other things. I feel like the title needs extending even further, right? But uh, but actually, my big observation would be, and it's the very first thing I said when I got to um, the department, literally as I came here on the first afternoon evening when I was appointed, was it's interesting that this is the business department. A lot of what we actually do here is focused on energy, unsurprisingly, in recent times with you know, the government is currently paying about a third of people's energy bills. People won't necessarily realise that because all we see as consumers is our energy bills going up. The question is, what would have happened if the government hadn't been paying? And the answer is they'd be a third higher, right? So, so and, and business as well. So, you know, this department has been busily involved in launching a half a dozen plus schemes to help pay that money back, sometimes through a payment through direct debit, sometimes through capping the price that you're charged in the first place. Many things that the Bay's business department had never done before and is suddenly involved in doing. So the department does a huge number of things. I think there's probably five or 6,000 people, plus arms length bodies that do all sorts of other stuff. In Davos, you talked a lot about scale-ups as a priority. What would you say are your top two or three priorities? Where do you want to get on the front foot? Yes. So first of all, Emphasis on business, entrepreneurship, industry, you know, that side of things. Because I think because the department is essentially the merger of what was the Department of Energy and Climate uh, with business, I think the business element of it maybe have gotten slightly lost. I'm fortunate to have had a background starting my own company, being an entrepreneur, and actually so has the small business minister. So every department, as you know, has a secretary of state, that's me in this case, and then a series of ministers who specialise in each different area of policy. And the minister for business, small business in particular, is Kevin Hollenrake, who himself started and founded a business, actually a, a successful um, estate agency uh, called Hunters, I think it was, which w- I think went on the AIM market and, yeah. and other things all before he came here. And so, so, so we've got real business experience here. And I think my first thought is, to be very, uh, you know, uh, unapologetically pro-business. It's where jobs come from, the subject of your podcast, as well. I'm delighted to, have, to, to welcome you here. I mean, it is literally, if you think about everything, starts from business. Like, if you want good health service, if you want good education, that's fine. You can have businesses, creating enough money, creating the tax, you know, paying the... So, so, so it's the heart of everything. That's the first thing. The second point, again, on the business front, this country is clearly brilliant at starting businesses we are you know as famously described as a nation of shopkeepers right that extends to many many other forms of business service industry and manufacturing but actually what we're very good doing is starting up I think five and a half million businesses or something what we're not always as good at doing is taking them through being medium sized and eventually global you know superpower businesses so one of the questions I've been asking myself since I've been here and have started to talk about publicly, uh, for example, at the CBI speech I gave in Davos, is why haven't we produced the next Google or Apple or Amazon or yeah, choose your company? 
Why, why is that happening elsewhere? And in a sense, actually, it's a bit of a riddle. I can tell you, I'll tell you why, if that's helpful. Yeah. Well, this is why it's a riddle in my mind. First of all, we've clearly got the entrepreneurship. Yeah. We've, we've got the drive. We've got the ideas. We're brilliant at the research and development. We're fantastic at coming up with sometimes completely revolutionary ideas. We, I think, file more patents than anywhere else outside the US. We have more Nobel Prize winners than anywhere else out there. Outside the US. More unicorns. Unicorns than which are these clarification, billion dollar, billion pound companies that than France and Germany and the Netherlands put together. We're the only economy in the world that has a trillion dollar tech economy. Uh sorry, only one of three, uh, America, China, and us. So we've got these massive advantages, but it doesn't stop there. We've got English, which is the language of business, which is pretty helpful. We've got a fantastic time zone. We've got, you know. I can see it out the window here. I, 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 maybe your viewers who are watching, right? We've got the city just over there. This is one of two great financial centers of the entire world right here. So scale-up finance should be uh, possible as well. I just think the, you know, the, the advantages go on and on and on and on. So how is it we don't quite get from the medium, very impressive business to the global, you know, business of, of 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 the future that everyone knows, and and I think if we can crack that, we'll see a lot more prosperity and wealth. In the past, we've not been good at having the money follow the scale up. So you get to a certain size, and then businesses say, "Look, I've got to go to the international markets, typically to the states, to you know, who will recognise it and snap it up." Yeah, we want to change that. So I've been working with the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt to, for example, he's worked brilliantly on changing. Some rules which sound quite arcane called um, Solvency 2. If people listening to this might be going, what are these Brexit benefits? Here's one, right? The EU regulated the way it does regulate for their members, the way that money and um, particularly in this case in the insurance market, uh, how much capital they have to have on reserve and all these kind of things, technical rules. Uh, we are able to now write those rules to suit our economy and our circumstances. And everyone agrees actually that there's great flexibility in this and these reforms, also known as the Edinburgh reforms, have been set out by the Prime Minister. That should release probably a hundred billion pounds of extra capital into the marketplace. I hope a lot of that money, hundred billion pounds over ten years, I hope that a lot of that money will follow some of these scale up businesses and we can scale up Britain. So I think the finance thing, there's definitely a cultural thing of people not being afraid of failure or rather I don't think people are afraid. I think society kind of discounts it or marks it now oh, they had that business that didn't work but if you go to silicon valley there's, there's well, they had that business what are they doing now you know it just doesn't matter and and so i think that sort of risk appetite cultural thing is, is is really important and actually to be completely blunt with you i don't know what all of the other reasons are as part of what we're doing here is putting it together and i've announced a scale up summit which we'll be holding later in the year which will be really digging into the detail of this and, um, and and putting together the package of things we need to do as a nation. And what you get, because there's financial capital, which you talked about there, then the other sort of primary one can often be forgotten is human capital and skills. So sort of coming on to the point of the podcast, as you say, because what I was intrigued by in your Davos speech is you listed some of the economies and sectors of the future. And I'll just read them out because I won't put you quite on the spot to remember them all. But there was artificial intelligence, advanced communication networks, robotics, augmented reality, immersive technologies, quantum blockchain, all potential game changers. Well, 
what are these future sectors going to create jobs wise? Yeah, I don't, sorry, I'd add to the to my own list: life sciences for sure, and and also creative markets. You know, this this country is brilliant. Uh, you know, and we're building huge new studios in the UK to make films, video productions, games, etc. We're fantastic at music, creative, and not just art, but also architecturally, you know, buildings and, and, and what have you. It doesn't matter where I go in the world as business secretary, someone always says, oh, there's the, there's the Foster building, there's a, or there's the Thomas Heverick such and such, you know, just everywhere you get. We are brilliant. We are, we are global superstars. So, so anyway, and, and actually, if I was listening to this podcast, I'd say, what about advanced manufacturing? What about this? What about that? I don't think we should limit our um, ambitions. But the other point which you draw me to with skills that I did mention in the Davos CBI speech is um, that this country remarkably has four, and this year's rankings, four of the world's top universities, top 10 universities, four of the top 10. Incredible, incredible, right? How can that not, you know, how can we not be turning that into, you know, the jobs of the future? And I think we're starting to and the clue is in, I do the, something called the National Security Investment Decisions. So this is where typically a foreign com- company might be buying a British company or part- partnering with it. And I see so much of that coming out of our universities. Now, I think this is a good thing. It means we are selling. I, d- I don't think we should never, we should have an open economy. We should allow people to come and buy our ideas and concepts and businesses. But I also want to see some of them grow up here as well. I just wanted to take a quick break to thank you all, the listeners, for making this show possible. Remarkably, we're now closing in on almost 100 episodes. If you'd like me to come in and speak to your company about all the lessons that we've learned across all the episodes that we've recorded, some of the different places that I've gone in to speak vary as much from the National Farmers Union right through to Microsoft. So please do drop us a line if you think you'd be interested in having a chat at partnerships at jobs of the future. This show is made possible by the support of our various partners. Today, I want to thank the Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially-minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that the people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. If you're interested in exploring partnerships and reaching 40,000 subscribers a month, please get in touch via partnerships at jobsofthefuture.co. Because that's one of the big things from my time at Stanford was that academia, government, and private enterprise, the flow between the three of them was much greater in the States, despite the fact they could often be much further apart, literally on different coasts. How do we get more of that here? I think government has a fantastic uh, role in being the convening power. And tomorrow, for example, I'll be co-chairing with my uh, fellow Secretary of State at Transport, Mark Harper, who's got my old job as Transport Secretary, the seventh uh, Jet Zero Council. Now, what's the Jet Zero Council? This is the concept that if we're going to be able to carry on flying and sort of almost have moral permission to carry on flying as well as legal because we've got to get to these net zero targets by law um, then we're going to have to invent a way of flying around the world without damaging it and i have a real interest in this both because i happen to be a pilot and i'm really interested in aviation but also because the constituency i represent is well in hatfield and hatfield is the home of the commercial jet engine 
to the first place in the world to create and produce and R&D create and produce a commercial jet engine in a plane called the Comet. And wouldn't it be brilliant if Britain was the next place to create zero carbon flight, jet zero flight or guilt-free flying as I, as I like to term it. Tomorrow's seventh jet zero council brings together exactly what you just said, the government, academia and the industry to try and fix this problem. And we're making real progress. So just people won't necessarily know this, but in the last couple of months, we've had the first flights of hydrogen aircraft. Yeah. You know, emitting no uh, dangerous hydrocarbons and, and greenhouse gases. And so so we can do this. And I think the convenient power of government to create those jobs of the future and industries of the future is really important. How would you sort of position yourself as an individual looking to take advantage of these sectors and so on? Careers advice isn't what it could be in schools. Mm. One of the things that's intriguing about your story particularly, and one of the kind of reputations that you have in politics, is sort of being the data expert, right? And crunching the data for both Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak's leadership campaigns. Also speaking to a number of your colleagues about it, in preparation for this interview, you gave some of the best analysis in Cabinet around the South African variant, arguing against various lockdowns and so on. So that's something you've kind of upskilled yourself in as a lifelong career development over the last 20 or 30 years. How did you go about doing that? And what's your advice to people starting their careers about how to get themselves ready for all the changing skills required? Well, so I think the interesting thing for entrepreneurs is that actually it's rare that you'll go to a career advisor and suddenly, you know, go, God, I've got to create Google. You know, <laughs> it's just not how the world works, is it? And, and, and so it may be that, you know, entrepreneurs need to inspire themselves to some degree by probably listening and watching and listening to great podcasts like uh, Jimmy's Jobs of the Future or something. You know, I think actually genuinely, uh, I d- 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 although my experience will be completely out of date, mm-hmm. y- you know, there are many, many ways you can inspire yourself these days. And the access to information is so much more merit. You know, much such a, a meritocracy, everybody has access to high quality information. So, you know, when I was a student, I used to go to read Mintel reports, which is a sort of sort of market research type reports. And I had to go to the central library. I was in Manchester and I had to go to the sort of the central library and sort of read the report. And there was nowhere else I could get that information. Now, if I wanted it without moving from the chairs we're sat in, right, I would access that information and everybody can do the same thing. So, that sort of meritocracy, I think, is really, uh, re- really important. Also, I mean, I've seen because of my 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 kids, one of whom didn't. I've got three kids, the twins, and twins in there, a girl and a boy. One has gone the girl through the traditional academic route. Um, she's gone to university, you know, etc. The other really was not hacking A levels, particularly during lockdown, and wanted to leave. Is more sort of business orientated, more what have you. But actually, uh, the career's advice was reasonably good but then i seen him go off and sort of find the books to read find it so my own experience though as since you ask actually came a bit later in life i mean i always knew i wanted to go into business before i went into politics which i did but i wasn't a particularly great student although i liked maths which was helpful all of the sort of geekery over sort of spreadsheets and stuff came later and it actually came as a result of reading or sometimes listening to books which i find very convenient if you're driving or something and uh, in particular some books like well actually it could be a combination of different things in my case uh lyndon baines johnson lbj who was a u.s president who sort of invented this idea 
which sounds strange that you'd have to invent it, that you need to count where the votes are going to come, which doesn't doesn't seem like that much of a surprise, combined with books from like financiers and stuff. I read a book by a guy called Ray Dialio, who's a US uh, investment guy. And he, he he just writes books about his theories on business and life and, and what have you. And I can sort of combine some of that with my own theories and, and then re- realize that often when you're trying to create something new in this particular case, how you could create predictive models of the way that votes might turn out, whether that was votes in the Brexit referendums or, or, or votes to do with leadership, that actually, you know, you, you, you can create some, you can, you can do better by sort of using other people's ideas but injecting your own uh, overlay onto it and this is so so i i created a version of statistical analysis for projecting the outcomes of votes which is not the way that whips in parliament would normally go so just to give you a very simple example so it's probably getting a bit too detailed but a whip in parliament would conventionally go jimmy are you going to vote for this against it you say you're going to vote for it and let's say you were going to be believed uh, you go down on the four side and they go to the next person I ignored that. Instead, what I did was come up with a, a, a way of saying, you say you're going to vote in favour of it. I'm only 75% sure, because I'm not sure you're totally sure in any way. Maybe you're you know, going to change your mind. And I'll come up with a percentage chance that you're going to vote in a particular way or carry out a particular action. And then the statistical analysis is on balance, I therefore think, that the answer will be this. Disadvantage, I don't know exactly who did and didn't vote. Advantage, I found it to be massively more accurate in predicting an outcome than working out individually what that person's going to absolutely definitely do. And that was actually basically the insight to how I was predicting outcomes of leadership races and and assisting in the cases of, as you say, Boris Johnson and and Rishi. It's so funny because, well, there's a few things that struck me from that. Partly we focus so much on personality in politics, whereas actually, you're right, it's numbers. It's numbers going through the corridors or voting. And also just the fact that you were given this sort of guru status. And like you say, there's definitely insight and clever to, cleverness to it. But it's actually relatively simple. Very straightforward. Uh, actually, I think in general, both in business and in government, like you need to be able to explain things on a page. And and if you can't, then there's probably a problem with the the concept or, or, or with thinking, which isn't clear enough. So So... In government, for example, probably famously in my department, departments I've been in at least, I like to have submissions which are the way that advice comes to you as a minister on two sides. You can have as many appendices and, and additional information and often I'll call for a lot more information. But if you can't sum the arguments up on two sides of an A4, there's probably something wrong with the policy that's being pursued, it, you know, because you've got to be able to explain it in the end to people why you're doing it. So, so and I think... Quite often, just clarity of thought, clarity of the question that you're asking, all of those things are as important to public policy making, but also in business. Why, who, where, when, what, just the basic questions often are the route to the successful businesses. And when you look at the polls at the moment in terms of data and so on, I mean, it's quite hard reading for conservative supporters. 20 points behind and so forth. So, so I, actually, this feels very 20. 13, 14 to me, this conversation. I was party chairman. The polls were terrible. We were in the coalition. Our side hated it. They were bickering with each other. You know, the, the, the country was fed up. We'd had austerity. And uh, we were, you know, 15 points behind in the polls. Then. And again, actually, directly refers back to the previous points we were discussing. What you've got to have is sufficient clarity of thought 
between where you are now and where you need to, you know, where you want to get to, where you want to take the country, and then be able to explain it to people, you know, on one side of A4 or whatever. And, you know, so what I'd say right now, at a very simplistic level, is why are we in this situation? There's lots of reasons, but no small part of it is we suffered a one in a hundred years, you know, more than a hundred year pandemic, which cost us £407 billion, which is a lot of money out of everybody's pockets and makes people feel grumpy. And then we uh, have got into a, a war in Europe, which has shoved up energy prices, forced up inflation, created an industrial action, you know, strikes environment where everyone is again grumpy, understandably, because no one wants that. So fundamentally, the problems that we're suffered, suffering are being replicated by almost every government in power, almost everywhere in the world that suffered from the high inflation. You know, so there's, there's a tendency to think this has all come some sort of mystery in Britain. It's not at all. What people want is, and people I think will accept, is this is difficult. What we want to know is that you lot are you know, properly minded, with clear thoughts, sort out these problems. They accept that we didn't invent the war. They accept we didn't invent COVID. How are you going to fix it? What, you know, and I think that's where Rishi Sunak has the advantage because he's been chancellor. People trust him on the economy more um, and they like him as a, as a prime minister. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, the rest of it is down to being organized enough as a party and, and clear enough on the messages. But of course, there's a route through. I'm not saying we definitely win the election, but I'm absolutely saying that we can. Yeah, absolutely. And I was here, as I say, as chairman, what was it, seven years ago, eight years ago, having the same conversations. And we and we won in 2015. Yeah, and that's interesting because there's more conversations about it being like 1992 or 1997. But I see that similar. I don't think it's like either. It's sort of yeah. In the end, you know, every, every election cycle is different. But British people aren't stupid. They realise that, the whole world is suffering the same problems, right? And they, and it's it's easy for us all to feel very grumpy about it, and because it's pushing everybody's living standards, because that's what inflation does. It kills your living standards, you know, at a rate of ten percent a year. Then, then you know, that's why the prime minister says get inflation down, create growth in the economy, you reduce debt overall. Otherwise, you're just leaving that for your kids. You know, get the waiting lists under control and stop the boats, the illegal uh, immigration. And I think actually you'd have quite a happy nation. And that's what we're going to do. Have you used chat GPT? Of, of course. What have you used it for? Well, it told me all the answers to this interview, yeah. Jimmy, more eloquently than I can possibly. Just experimenting with it, really. I think it, it's fascinating that one technology can, you know, write a half decent essay on anything you, you yeah. ask it to write an essay on. Great limericks and rhymes if you put your name in or whatever. But, but uh, if you're in the public, Sphere, I guess, but also uh, can produce a bit of Python to look at the last thousand tweets of every MP and pull out when they mention climate change or whatever you want to do, and it does all these things. I mean, it's it's actually you know it's an extraordinary insight, I think, into the next level of technology and AI, rather than necessarily being entirely there at the moment. And why do you think it will impact us? Because you're right in that sense. We've talked a lot about these industries in this interview. But sometimes it can be quite hard to actually see where these things are going to be impacted. It's only when you see cashiers being replaced in supermarkets over the last few years where people have begun to see, oh, that's how this is going to impact us. How will ChatGPT change things? Yeah, it's interesting because I remember as a kid going to the Science Museum, which naturally I loved, and they, were, they, they, they had two things which fascinated me. One were traffic lights that as you approach them, 
they knew you were there and were able to change. This was, this was the kind of temporary lights that now go routinely when there's an annoying bit of roadworks being done, whatever it was shown in the science museum, eventually it happened. And then the other thing which like, I always remember seeing were, were barcodes. And it was like amazing. One day at the shopping, at the checkout, you're, you know, you will swipe your thing or they'll swipe your thing. Yeah. You're like, it'll be amazing. Actually, really what's amazing is just how many decades it's it's taken. I mean, the barcodes did come in on all products, of course, but it carried on that it was the cashier picking up your thing and, and, and swiping it and then a bit maybe you do it. But the idea that you just remove the cashier and go straight to the barcode, I don't know, last five, ten years, right? And actually now in lots of shops, you know, you might find they're only, pretty much only, swipe through. And, and so sometimes the adoption can take a while. I suspect adoption will get faster with things like AI. I think people, particularly because the internet's been invented in between, um, ideas therefore spread faster and habits change faster. So, I mean, I often find I have to pick up these things in a slightly geeky way ahead of time. So I remember I had a on, on my phone contactless payment um, quite early on before it went on to Apple Pay and, and became sort of... And I just remember thinking, why won't everyone just want to pay like this in the future? This is so fast and simple and not having to mess around with cash and not having to wait for change and not having to even take your credit card out, your worst purse or, or wallet. And, and now, I mean, I was just observing kind of in the co-op by me the other day. I was, there were six people in front of me in the queue and every single one of them paid on their phone. Elderly people, my parents, 80s, 90s, pay on their phones. Wow. Yeah, it's changed dramatically. And yeah, so what do you think it might be used for? I mean, what have you used it to experiment with so far? So, so I, 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 I guess that people will start to work it into the back end of uh, all sorts of uh, applications. So it won't necessarily be that it's the student typing in and trying to get an answer to the project. A nightmare for universities, because whereas you could check for plagiarism quite easily before by running it through a checker, you can't do quite the same thing with, with uh, AI. I think it'll be about less about that. It'll be more about how it's integrated back end of a system. So I'm, I'm afraid probably in the short term, we'll see slightly more frustrating conversations with chatbots on websites where you still don't quite get the answer you wanted even more of the time because they've decided to link it up with an AI background. But um, hard to predict. I, you know, I don't know. I do know that it's going to be a big part of the future though. Definitely. We've got a few quick fire ones to finish off with. Sainsbury's, Waitrose or Tesco? Uh, well, we shop at Tesco. Right, okay. What was your first job? I briefly worked uh, in Manchester after I finished studying at Gestetner, photocopying type machines, uh, because I knew I wanted to go into printing and I thought I should get some experience around that market. Favourite gadget? Uh, actually, probably my phone. It just does everything. I mean, you know, from from being a torch to, uh, you know, to, to radio to, to a phone uh, occasionally. Uh, you know, to, to access to the world's entire information on the internet. I mean, it just is the thing that you'd want on a desert island. Oh, plus a battery solar panel to, to stop it from running out. <laughs> you mentioned earlier briefly, you're a pilot. Have you flown a drone? Yes. Yeah. How did you find it? Uh, quite difficult to fly, actually. Much harder than flying yourself, I, I find. Because or from an orientation point of view, you're not inside it. Favourite video game? Yeah, no, I haven't really got one. Favourite podcast? Well, obviously, Jimmy's Jobs of the Future is right up there. Actually, I, I mostly don't listen to podcasts. I mostly listen to books yeah. online. Right now, I'm listening to The Last King of America, who, of course, everyone thinks the, the king who went mad. I always have a book uh, and usually drive my team mad about why they should listen to the same book. Do you prefer listening to books 
rather than reading them. Actually, it's just a convenience thing because I just when I'm reading, it's nearly always reading submissions from my department. And so I'm reading all day long. Whereas a book, if I'm driving somewhere or doing something where I can, you know, uh, you, you know, just that time out moment is something I can do where I won't be able to read necessarily. What's the best business entrepreneurship book you've read lately? Oh. Um, One that's kind of stuck with you. Yeah, I, I I actually think there's these this this Radialio series, which is actually I mentioned a book before. There's a there's a there's another book which talks about um, rise and fall of, of of empires. Actually, it's about how debt has a big part to play in the success of businesses as well as the success of of, uh, of countries. And I think I really like listening to stuff which kind of expands your mind and maybe you don't agree with. But it's very interesting to listen to anyway. Yeah, yeah, totally. Wolf of Wall Street or The Big Short? Probably The Big Short because I think it's educational. What was the first single you bought and in what format? It was, I guess that's why they call it the blues. It was on take set. That's a very bang on conservative thing. Football or rugby? Neither, actually. There you go. And what if you could pass the mic to some of the British entrepreneurs that you've met? Mm. Who's impressed you? Who should we get on the show? So actually, I'm going to give this to a, an American company that the Brits have successfully enticed here, reversing that usual someone else has the idea and then it goes abroad from Britain. Uh, they're a company called Zero Avia. They've managed to fly an aircraft uh, with one of the engines on hydrogen. Uh, it's a 19-seater. They did a six-seater, then a 19-seater. And the next step is to move it up. They're not the only ones doing it, but I think it's very impressive. Oh, can I do a second one? Brilliant company called Vertical who are creating like an Evital, you know, one of these sort of helicopter type things. It's entirely electric. Um, I think they have about one and a half thousand orders for these kind of flying taxi sort of things. It's all happening down in Bristol or something. Fitzpatrick. That's it. That's it. And uh, look, this is, this is, this is the future. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. And this is, this is where Britain can lead. And what would be your dream job if it wasn't this one? Well, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm very happy, first of all, being Business secretary, I, I I should say, and I will do whatever the nation requires of me. Yeah, but what about would it be pilot? Oh, I see. Like if I wasn't in politics. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, I say I thought I thought you were sort of. Um, no, I think I. I mean, obviously, I really enjoy being in 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 politics and uh, in government itself. Um, I mean, I think I would do something which was entrepreneurial and probably something which is not too standard. So I would. I probably would look to do something which invents or creates something new and, and you know, tries to find, maybe be part of how can we create the big businesses of the future based on some new technologies. You know, my central kind of purpose of, of trying to scale up Britain, I'd like to be part of that. Brilliant. Grant, thanks very much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways we make this show possible is through our various partnerships. If you'd like to partner with us, you'd be joining one of the UK's fastest growing business podcasts. We've helped a wide variety of groups tell their story, from the National Farmers Union right through to the FinTech Alliance. So if you'd like to work with us, just go to www.jobsofthefuture.co. To keep up to date with all Jobs of the Future news, you can follow us across all social media, including our TikTok and YouTube channels.